In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The voice of my beloved, look, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. Or, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. As we're getting ready for the 7.30 service this morning, Betty Young comes up to me and asks, so these are love songs, right? Yes. Should I sing them with that kind of emphasis? Yeah, that's okay, Betty. This morning's readings are a little different from what we've been studying. Over the last few months, we've been reading about the kings of Israel, their stories, their triumphs, their tragedies, all the good and all the bad. And this morning we read, the flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The next few weeks, we're going to be reading from the writings attributed to Solomon. That's the connecting tissue. The Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, is one of the most written about books of the Old Testament. It's controversial. People have often wondered and argued about why there's an erotic love poem sitting slap in the middle of the Old Testament. In fact, they argued about it for years. Rabbi Akaba, an esteemed Jewish scholar, persuasively argued the song was divine writ. Indeed, it was the great work, was the apex of Jewish scripture. For the Jews of this period, the song was set of poems in the sanctity of love and the love of God for Israel. He said, the Song of Songs is holy because it was written under the influence of the Spirit. Once the holiness of the song was affirmed, it began to be interpreted as a deeply theological document. The rabbis are credited with the use of sophisticated allegorical interpretation, explaining the text where the characters or events represent or symbolize abstract ideas or people, or they went through the history of Israel and started matching up all the different parts of what they thought the song was trying to tell them. In this model, the song describes and praises God's relationship to his chosen people and links the text to the various stages of history. This is reflected in the use of the song as the reading for Passover, starting in about 800 A.D. The church fathers, Hippolytus and Oregon, amongst others, also favored the allegorical model. Last week I mentioned that the idea that God's love is for us a scandal, that philosophers and theologians have often said that if we truly understood the state of humanity in ourselves and what God did to show his love to us, we should be scandalized. Think about that in the light of these verses. Here we have the woman who in this analogy is the church looking toward her beloved, Christ. The church has seen Christ come at a distance and sees his desire for us. And then Christ responds, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. The winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Look at this life. Look at as what happened to us after the coldness that was sin and death was overcome. Christ bids us to follow him. And this works on many levels. Think about our story a couple of weeks ago where the disciples were called to have a deeper commitment to follow. When the church follows the bridegroom wherever he goes, when a parent encourages their children to follow them in the faith, Christ heard that same love 
when he was in the garden praying. And the result of that love is, it's wonderful, it's powerful, it's hard to describe. Think about what Christ has done in your life this morning. It's like trying to describe, describe the love you have for your wife, your spouse, your significant other that first time you met them. Trying to put that into words. We're trying to describe that feeling that love itself brings. My heart is stirring with a noble song. Let me recite what I have fashioned for my king. My tongue shall be the pen of a skilled writer. Our psalm this morning is one written for a royal wedding. Others have also seen it, just like our, the Song of Solomon this morning is pointing to Christ, albeit again in kind of a roundabout way. C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the psalm, saw this psalm as pointing to Christmas. He said, The birth of Christ is the arrival of the great warrior and the great king, but also of the lover, the bridegroom, whose beauty surpasses that of man. But not only of the bridegroom as the lover and the desired, but also as the bridegroom as the one who is going to make fruitful, the father of children still to be begotten and born. Think about that for a moment. Christ is the culmination of everything that happens in the Old Testament. But not every incident recorded has a direct correlation, or else you end up in some of the kind of twisted, weird, allegorical interpretations you end up from the rabbis, trying to make every little bit of history fit in with every little bit of what's there. So keep that in mind as you read and study and pray. Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate iniquity. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. This morning we read about the anointed one in the Gospel of Mark. We see a group of scholars has come down from Jerusalem to talk with Jesus. And the first thing they noticed was not anything he was saying or anything he was doing. It was that some of the disciples were eating without washing hands. Now today, I'd send my children back to the washroom if they showed up at the, at the table with dirty hands. I think most of us would. That's the way we were raised. But think about the world before running water. And think about the world before running water in the desert. Water was precious, and for everything back then, they'd have to go to a well or a stream just to get the water to wash up with. And sometimes the water in a stream is not always healthy or clean. Now Mark gives this parenthetical explanation for his readers who aren't Jews. They do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, observing the traditions of the elders. And they don't eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups and pots and bronze kettles. But what Mark doesn't get into this morning, what he doesn't say, is that the water also had to be poured from a vessel that had already been purified. So guess what? It wasn't always possible to have a purified vessel with water in it sitting there, unless you lived in Jerusalem where you could go find the priest every time your purified vessel became unpure. And if it was possible for you to go and be able to do that at every opportunity, you were extremely privileged. And think about it. Jesus points out it wasn't even a command. It wasn't anything God asked them to do. It was a tradition they had made up to keep them from accidentally swallowing anything unclean. Over in Matthew, Jesus says it this way. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. 
Now, in a similar vein, the verses we skipped over this morning, in 9 through 13, Jesus talks about how the Pharisees say that the commandment to honor your father and mother is one of the greatest commandments that God gives. And that Jesus points out something called korban. Now, korban is probably not a term that you're familiar with, but it's this idea of dedicating something to God. But in this case, people were using this process to protect their assets, setting aside for their own use under God instead of taking care of their elderly parents. They weren't honestly dedicating their treasures towards God. And Jesus answers all of this by saying, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing from outside a person that going in can defile. But the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evils come from within, and they are what defile a person. Jesus wasn't rejecting the law. He wasn't rejecting the traditions. In fact, he's rebuking them for their failure to uphold it. James, history says this is the one that was Jesus' little brother, begins his epistle discussing the trials and tribulations that Christians go through from time to time. Our first verse this morning read, Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In saying that, James is letting his readers know that God is not a random god or goddess. He's not one of the stars in the sky. He's the creator of all. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has power to save your souls. Jesus' brothers agreeing with him, but without using Jesus' name, which is pretty typical for a little brother. Don't be like the Pharisees, Jesus said. They pile on the rules and don't follow them themselves. And James says, But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. We will be blessed when we live into this. But how do we live our lives day to day? How do we show that we're not simply following the rules and kind of exploiting them at opportunities, like the hypocrites? But more importantly, how do we reflect the great love we see Solomon, the psalmist, writing about this morning? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James says to live live a life that keeps yourself unstained from the world. And over the next few weeks, as we dig deeper into the book of James, we'll talk more about what James means here. But let's focus on the first part this morning, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress. We can reflect God's great love for us by taking care of those who in life are often considered the least. We can give, volunteer, pray to make sure their needs are taken care of. Because if that's not what is coming out of your heart, you may already be defiled by what is inside. Amen.